Thank you, Mike. Good morning, saints. A few of you are here. Good morning, sinners. The rest of you are here. It's a good morning to all those who are watching on our live stream. This is the first time in a while since we've actually gone full live, so thank you for tuning in and being present. So let me ask you a simple question. Do you remember the story of the turtle and the rabbit? There was a rabbit, he thought he was the fastest animal in the entire forest. He uh, made sure that everybody knew about it. Uh, he would run around bragging about his speed, his agility, his ability to run and to beat everybody and anybody. And so every time he told somebody, he would challenge them to a race. You want to race? You want to race me? Just to prove how fast he really is. One day he was talking to the turtle and uh, he challenged the turtle to a race and of course the turtle accepted. This was too much for the rabbit who laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And he knew there was just absolutely no way that the turtle was going to beat him in the race. And so he was just going to make a spectacle of this poor little guy. And so he invited all the forest creatures, all the animals to come and watch this magnificent race. And the day came, the turtle and the rabbit, they got to that starting line and the animals are all standing around. They're all watching. They're all even cheering, right? And the bear, the bear gets up there and says, on your mark get set and go and the race was off and the rabbit immediately raced ahead was out of sight through the forest but before the turtle barely even left the starting line and the race wasn't too long and about halfway through the rabbit decided well you know what i'm so far ahead i'm going to stop and take a nap no problem after all you know <laughs> won't my victory be better if i actually just take some time and tell everybody i even had time to take a sleep uh, before the end of the race. And so what he did is he went and he found a nice piece of grass in the sun and laid down to sleep. And the sun was nice and warm and the grass was very uh, soft. And of course, Mr. Rabbit decided to sleep a little bit longer than he had wanted to. In the meantime, the turtle slowly, steadily plodded through until he passed the sleeping rabbit. And right when he was near that finish line, all the animals began to cheer. And the rabbit suddenly awoke from his nap. He had realized that he had overslept. And he realized he was about to lose. And he got up and he raced as fast as he could. But nevertheless, he was not able to beat the turtle across the finish line. No punch to my story. You see, because generally we hear stories. And the stories that we have heard so many times before, we tend to actually phase them out. Or we wait for some new twist and our minds begin to wander off other things. And so too often when we come to the stories of the Bible, you know, stories that we've heard before, we think we know the story and we think we know what it's all about, and we end up actually missing what the story is really trying to get across to us, the readers. And today we're probably going to be looking at the, well, we're looking at, not probably, but we are actually looking at the best known and yet least understood story in the Bible, and that is the book of Jonah. From the world's point of view, Jonah and the whale have become a, a part of literature. It's a part of mythical, legendary history. It's a book upon which people ridicule with disbelief, and uh, it's basically laughed out of the Bible as being kind of a fable. Uh, it's not taken seriously. It's a fish story. It's not taken historically. It's just a real big fish story. So, before we dive in, let's get our minds around the three characters that are involved in this story. There's the prophet of God named Jonah, who's actually a super 
religious racist, best known as a hypocrite. Um, he himself receives great grace from God. He was very patriotic. I'd go fa so far as to say, if we try to equate it today, he's a hyper-nationalist. If you were around today, he would be on social media and he would be hashtagging everything blessed and America. So if you, you know what I mean when I say what he's like. There's also Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is this, this flourishing capital of the Assyrian Empire. Um, Nineveh is the non-believing bad guy in the story. And they have bullied, they have beaten Israel for decades. They are simply very cruel people. These guys were so bad, as a matter of fact, we'll get to that in a moment. And then we finally have the good guy, the only good guy in the story, which is actually God. And he's the giver of mercy and grace towards all of those who don't deserve it. Those are our three characters. So, with those three characters in mind, fasten your seatbelt, put your tray tables in an upright and locked position, and turn your cell phones off, unless, of course, you're using them as your Bible. And uh, if you're tuning in for the first time in regards to our series here, we ask five simple questions. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book important? What is the main message? And finally, how do I apply it to my life? Let's go! All right, first one. Who wrote the book? The book of Jonah written primarily in third person. Doesn't really explicitly name the prophet as the author, but we have no reason to doubt uh, either the inspiration or the historicity of this book. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, as it starts in verse 1. Uh, he's identified as the son of Amittai. Jonah came from this small town called Gath, uh, Hefer near Nazareth, which later becomes known as Galilee. We get that because he's cross-referenced in 2 Kings chapter 14. It makes Jonah one of the few prophets of the minor prophets that comes from the northern kingdom of Israel. His name means dove, all right, which signifies this idea of a messenger. Uh, the, his dad's name, Amittai, means truth. So, you know, Jonah is this messenger of truth. He's a prophet. It's God's truth. So it's no surprise to us when that God calls Jonah, it's his job to answer the call. Jonah's actually a historical character, and he's mentioned in other places of Scripture. Like I said, 2 Kings refers to him as a historical prophet. He's also referred to by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12. So in my opinion... With this kind of backing, there could be no doubt that the book of Jonah is historically accurate. So where are we in history? Oops, sorry. During Jonah's time, again, Israel is in a strong political, uh, is strong very politically, but not spiritually. During the reign of Jeroboam II, again, the contemporary of Amos, Jeroboam uh, is... Uh, obviously an evil king. The, their borders have expanded. It's after Solomon's reign. Things are going very well with prosperity. The culture has become very uh, materialistic. They thrived on injustice of the poor and the oppressed. And again, that was Amos' key message um, uh, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. But Jonah comes in here, and Jonah eventually prophesied to Nineveh um, during the time of Ashurdan III, who was the king of Assyria between 772 and 754 BC. So we have a rough time frame there. Now again, Assyria themselves was uh, politically weakened for some time, but by the time of Jonah, their cruelty of Israel was very well known. In other words, uh, 
they were basically modern-day terrorists, if you want to put it that way, who bullied Israel for decades. That's what this nation was. And they were well-known for their methods of death and torture. They would skin people alive. They would bury them up to their necks in sand. They would nail their tongues to the ground and then leave them there to die. These guys were bad guys. So why is this book so important? Well, Jonah was one of only four writing prophets that Jesus mentioned by name during his earthly ministry. Jesus mentions Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, uh, as well as Jonah. But Jonah receives more than just a mere mention. When we look in the New Testament, we see that Jesus actually identifies himself with the prophet's journey in a belly of a fish, noting as it's a foreshadowing of his own death. And so the fact that Jesus would spend three days in the heart of the earth before his resurrection. And so the book of Jonah stands as a very important link in the prophetic chain, giving us as readers glimpses of Jesus' death and resurrection hundreds of years before it actually occurs. And the book is also very clearly about God's grace. So the main message then, when we look at this, is rather than having Jonah prophesy to his own people, God commissions him to go to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Jonah was unwilling to go to make this journey northeast to deliver his God's message. And so what does he do is he turns around, he does a 180, and he aims for the farthest westward point known to him, Tarshish, which was located in modern-day Spain. There's just no way he was going to go up to Nineveh. And if you're a guest here this weekend or if you're watching online, I... Uh, I, I think we always try to be incredibly welcoming, and I hope that even today, if you're in this place, that you felt that way or this way uh, so far. But today, I got to be honest, it's probably not the best time to be a visitor today. Um, because some of the suspicions that people have, let's say, about Christians, uh, you know, one, one reason probably many people dislike them is about to be confirmed. And it's the biggest of all. And I want to share it with you, because it's true. You see, I don't know if you knew this, but religious folks can be hypocrites. Yeah. And sometimes the most religious-looking ones are the biggest hypocrites. So with that in mind, to the person sitting next to you in your family group, and just look at them and say, you're a hypocrite. All right? Now we're all on the same page, right? Now don't we all feel better? I didn't see you looking at him and calling him a hypocrite. I think you guys need to do that. Yeah, there we go. So the story of Jonah is about a very religious man, but not one that we're supposed to emulate. And I hope you know it now when we take a look at the Scriptures. It's not about characters in the Scriptures to emulate, but it's about a Savior, Jesus, who we adore. And the main message of Jonah is the same message of the entire Bible itself. God is always pursuing those he loves ferociously. He's pursuing. And if you hear nothing else, then hear this this morning, that there's, no matter what you've done, even in all of our sin, even in all of our hypocrisy, it doesn't disqualify us from God's love. He is relentlessly pursuing after us, and the fact that you and I are here today is proof of that. He's drawing us to himself. In chapter 1, God calls Jonah. He calls him to go and preach against the great city of Nineveh because it is so wicked. But as we know, Jonah does the 180, heads down the opposite direction. The Bible tells us he went down to Joppa where he found a ship to board uh, at the port. 
Now it's interesting, when we try to run away from God, when you think about it, you'll be amazed how often you're going to find a ship ready to go in the opposite direction. So there it is, he continues on. And Jonah, after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You got to, you know, again, who's ever writing this is fabulous. He paid the fare. Awesome, you know. If he's going to be disobedient, at least, at the very least, he wants you to know that he ended up paying something, right? You know, he's honest about his disobedience, I think, more than anything else. But when you run away from God, you're always going to end up paying something, one way or another. And trying to flee from God's presence is going to lead to some sort of problems, and it's actually ridiculous when you think about it. Psalm 139 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me, your sight, your right hand shall hold me. In other words, God, the maker of heaven and earth, who, who is everywhere at all times simultaneously, we have to understand that there's no way for us to get out of his boundaries. It's not possible. But there will always be something or someone or somewhere to run to, to try to get away from God. But we can't. Now the boat's on its way to Tarshish. And a uh, great storm comes, and it's threatening to destroy not just the ship, but actually everybody on board. You have these seasoned sailors who are absolutely terrified. And I find it very interesting that even for us, when we try to outrun God, it always leads to more problems. Anyway, all the sailors are terrified. They do what they can to keep the vessel afloat. And as soon as they find Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the, like this storm's going on. Here he is. He's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. You know, the captain even says, how can you sleep in all this? Get up and pray to your God. And I just wonder if running from God is tiring, right? And you just don't want to think about it. That's probably Jonah. But then the sailors, what they did is they ended up talking to each other. They said, come, let us cast lots and find out who's responsible for this calamity. They know that somebody's responsible. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making uh, all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, and this is where his pride kicks in. I am a Hebrew. (laughs) And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And you can almost see his pride coming through, puffing up his chest when he says and he identifies that he's a Hebrew. I am one of God's chosen people. You know, and again, I will say this. It's not bad to be proud of something, but proud and pride are two very different things. I see this. I see myself in in Jonah. And in his runaway posture is our posture when we sin against God. And, and it's interesting, because it's not that we have stopped believing in God. It's just what we believe has shifted. And when proud shifts to pride, it leads to what we would call idolatry. And idolatry is anything in our lives that we value more than God. And here we see that Jonah's idol was his identity. His identity of being an Israelite, of being a prophet. And I would also add to this a nationalist. Anyway, he, he, they draw the straws and Jonah gets the short end of the stick, literally, and he's eventually reluctantly thrown overboard by the crew 
And what happens is that the storm begins to subside. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And so the fact of the matter is we can run from God, but we can't outrun God. And just because you try to flee from his presence doesn't mean that he has a plan. So Jonah flees, and God, what does he do? He appoints a fish, and already now there's more humor in the story. The fish obeys God better than Jonah does. But God continues to provide for Jonah. He continues to be patient with Jonah, and we keep reading. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And what we see is that God is faithful to answer when we cry out. And sometimes life's currents swirl around us as well, right? We lose a job, our hearts get broken, the results are come back positive. And many people attribute, you know, attribute this, oh, this is the work of Satan. But God uses a circumstance that we find ourselves to relentlessly get our attention. So no matter what the cause... Painful events in our life should always cause us to stop and find out if we are walking in God's footsteps. Are we listening? Are we paying attention? And the big fish that swallows Jonah was not a punishment for his disobedience. When you look at it, it was God's life preserver cast out to save somebody. Have you ever thought that God used life's painful events to get our attention? I would think so. Part of Jonah's prayer in verse uh, 3 in chapter 2 says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He's calling it out as he is. He goes on to give a big prayer of remorse and, and thanks to God in all of chapter 2. The, the irony is that Jonah didn't appreciate his own words about God's grace. He was the one worshiping false gods of false idols and turning his back on God's mercies. And then we read at the end of chapter 2, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. You have to laugh. You, you do, because usually when a man eats bad fish, he vomits. Well, here, a fish eats a bad man and, and vomits out, right? So the story continues in chapter 3. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't we glad that we serve the God who gives us second chances? Even, our, even in our disobedience, right? So he tells Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go to the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In Hebrew, this is a five-word sermon. <laughs> Basically how it's translated. It's a five-word sermon. Hey, guys, you're going to die. Basically is what he's going to say. And yet the entire city repents. The scholars estimate that uh, uh, it was like a, a region area. It wasn't one massive city, but it was a region of a bunch of smaller cities all pulled together, roughly around 600,000 people. And what do they do? They repent, they turn around, they call for a national fast, they put on sackcloths from the greatest of them to the least of them. And Jonah is bitter 
about having to preach to his enemy. He's so bitter that all he does is a, a hellfire and brimstone message. You're going to die. You know? There's no good news. There's no Christian buzzword, so to speak. You know, God loves you. Hey, forgiveness. All he says is that you're going to get destroyed. And the entire city repents. And then in verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And now the story ends with Jonah being angry with God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. <laughs> you got to think about it this way. Is it possible that most of the frustration in our life comes from us thinking that God should have done something differently? But to Jonah, what happened, this relenting and of, of discipline, of punishment, to Jonah it seemed wrong and he becomes angry. And he prays to God. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. And what Jonah does now is he begins to use God's awesome character as an insult. And he's so mad that God is so good. So how do we apply this, chap, this, this book to our lives? Well, the application is actually found in chapter 4. And the book of Jonah is unlike any Old Testament prophecy. All the other prophets, they actually focus on warning others of God's judgment and encouraging them to uh, wait uh, for God's rescue. But um, the true audience of this book of Jonah is not the citizens of Nineveh. It's actually Jonah himself. And that all that God did in this book was not to teach the Ninevites something, but rather he was trying to teach Jonah something. And Jonah's angry with God because God messed up. Jonah's actually afraid of God and his mercy, if I could put it that way. Everything that Jonah despises of God, he experiences for himself. And God has been gracious. God has been merciful. God has been slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster to Jonah. He shouldn't be resentful. He should be actually grateful. And it's funny how Jonah didn't have a problem with these same characteristics of God when he was in the belly of the fish and spared at that moment in time. But he's all for God unleashing all types of destruction upon Nineveh. And what he's afraid of is that God would actually relent and spare the city. He didn't want that. He wanted them destroyed. And so now what happens is we're actually getting an insight into Jonah's heart. Now remember when I said when we're looking at the minor prophets, it's a mirror to us. So are we getting an insight into our own hearts? And here we have Jonah's heart. is Now it's being exposed. And, and the reasons for his running are revealed in his frank and irreverent argument to God and following a great revival so to speak Jonah is so enraged by God's grace and God's compassion and love for these Ninevites that Jonah actually prefers death to living he says that I kind of laugh when I read through this because most pastors are actually frustrated at some point because people refuse to change and here Jonah gets frustrated because they did change 
And the irony is thick in this book because Jonah is like you and me. He's happy to receive God's grace, but he's angered when he sees it extended to godless and awful people who we believe are nowhere near as good and deserving as we are. It reeks with pride. Jonah's saying, God, you're being just too nice to them. You should have wiped them out. And again, I actually think that Jonah's a racist, honestly. And one of his big fears is that God was showing love to certain people that he didn't. And he knew if they they positively responded to the message that God gave them and they repented that God in his character, because it was his character, it would relent and love them. And he didn't, you know... And then they're not going to get punished, but rather they're going to get forgiven. And Jonah didn't want that. He wanted to literally see them burn. And he's angry. And it's as if God is just sitting back and waiting when we read through this story. And God responds to Jonah asking if he has any right to be angry. And by asking the question, God was basically asking Jonah to consider whether he existed to obey Jonah's commands or whether Jonah existed to obey obey God's commands. And of course, Jonah refuses to discuss the matter with God. And and we have to understand that God isn't asking Jonah this question to show him, you know, because or because he doesn't know the answer. He's, He's asking Jonah this question to show him that he needs an attitude adjustment. Jonah's thinking is the problem. And God's got to help him deal with it. God's got to help him work it through. You know, we've all ran into people who've needed an attitude adjustment, especially if you've ever had children. But have you ever needed an attitude adjustment? And so God saw that Jonah needed an attitude adjustment. And so in chapter 4, verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. He made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen. He's angry, but he's waiting. Maybe God, maybe God's going to change his mind. And so he's struggling with the idea that God actually loves the people, that, the very people that he himself hates. And he's watching, seeing if God's going to change, if God will ultimately destroy it. And, and now he'll have a great view of the city to watch the carnage. And now the attitude adjustment begins to kick in. We can presume it was probably 30 to 40 degrees Celsius, and God provides his vine to grow over Jonah to give him shade and the heat. And uh, it helped ease that discomfort, right? And Scripture says that Jonah's very happy with the vine. And so just as God provided the wind and the storm and the fish, he now provides this vine. The vine grows miraculously very quickly, provides shade, And like, again, it's the first time in the book that we see that Jonah is happy. But early the following morning, in a hilarious irony, God provides what? A worm to chew the vine so it withers just as the sun rose and provided, and God provides a scorching wind and searing blaze on Jonah's head. Like, there's humor here, but we just don't see it. And since Jonah had failed to learn the lesson of the fish, God tries to teach him another lesson one more time. This time the lesson plan is reversed. Jonah will not move from distress to deliverance as he did in the water, but he's now moving from deliverance to distress. And Jonah's done like dinner. He's done. 
sitting stubbornly in defiance. He's nearly passing out. He, I actually think he's just yelling at God. Here he is out in the desert yelling, it would be better for me to die than to live. And of course, God's listening, and he asks Jonah, he says, but do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Of course, Jonah in his pride says, I do, I do. I'm angry enough to die. Okay. So it's interesting. We're at the end of the chapter, and when you look at it, God gets the first word in the book, and now he gets the final word. Verse 10, we pick it up. It says, but the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. And should I not have concern over the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's actually, just so you know, it's a euphemism for children, right, who don't know which hand is which. And then, of course, he says, and also many animals. And, of course, God can't forget cattle, right, because he's an animal lover and he loves barbecue. I'm just saying, that's just how it is. So what God does is he actually lays bare the heart of Jonah. And what es in essence, what he is actually saying here, and he's got the final words, is you pity the plant and you get angry when I destroy it, but when I pity people who don't know any better, you get angry with me. And throughout the book, Jonah looks simply wicked, right? As wicked as the pagans. The pagans that he was sent to to preach to, who at least, when they heard the message, urgently repented while he continued to sin. Isn't that interesting? And I believe God continued to pursue Jonah long after these events concluded in Nineveh, and eventually the prophet was brought to repentance, which explains why this book was written and why he is not the hero, because he's not. Instead, what we do is we get a honest glimpse of exactly how simple Jonah is, how gracious God is, and, and the kind of self-righteous, um, racist jerk he would truly be without God. And that is the question that Jonah leaves us, the readers, to ponder. Who would we be if God simply left us to ourselves and stopped running after us? And I think, like Jonah, this book brings us, all of us, as we read it, under conviction with the things that, that God has given us. When you think about it, look at our homes, our cars, our hobbies, our health, our friends, and, and the list goes on. More than the great city and its spiritually blind people who we pass every day. And we ignore because our minds are consumed with a trivia, angry, pondering about how God is unfair to us. A couple of weeks ago when I preached about Amos, about social injustice. It was interesting. I went to Safeway. And uh, of course there was a, a panhandler out front. And uh, I walk in and, hey, can you spare coffee? Sorry, buddy, I got no change. And I, I, get, I get my business, do my business, and I just preached. I just preached. And <laughs> And I'm walking out, and I look at the guy, and I'm going, I, 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 in good conscience, I, I just can't do this. So of course I go put my groceries back, and I come walking back, and there's a little Starbucks in the Safeway. And I look at him, and I say, how do you like your coffee? 
tells me. So I go in, get it, bring it out to him, give it to him. Thinking, thinking I did the right thing, which in essence I did. I was totally responsible, and I gave, I gave to him what he asked for. And he, he was truly grateful. Of course, I walked to my car at the end of the parking lot, turn around, start coming back. And what does he do? He puts the coffee down and he goes right back to it. Now, I could have been all bent out of shape, thinking, I bought you a coffee, you should be drinking your coffee. But it was almost as if God spoke to me. It was interesting because here I am, I'm just preaching to everybody about let's look after the poor and everything else. But I, I realized I did what I had to do. I did what I was asked to do. And what he does with once I give it is his business. But it, it messed me up that, that day. It just sort of threw me off going, you know, you're preaching one thing, how are you living your life? And so that was part of the conversation that was going on in my head, going from Safeway to the car and, going, and, and having this argument. And, and the argument was, was it with me or was it with God? I wasn't quite sure. But like, seriously, dude, you could, you could do this. This is not that hard. And I look at what's going on here and what we can learn even from Jonah's own experience. Because in our world, we're so self-centered, aren't we? We lived with self-centered people. And self-centered people are actually self-deceived people. And very few people would ever admit this, but most of us, at one time or another, we have lived by this belief that we basically, will, nobody deserves grace and mercy as much as me. Right? It's all about me. And I think it's human nature to actually underestimate the impact of our own sin. While we overestimate the impact of other people's sin, right? It's always greater with other people. And also self-absorbed people are, uh, self-centered people are very self-absorbed people. Uh, you know, self-absorbed people will basically say, well, there's no suffering more significant than what is happening to me. Listen, God wanted to teach Jonah a lesson and it required that that prophet would actually suffer for a little bit in order for that message to take hold. And I'm convinced that all we have to do to live self-centered lives is nothing. We, by nature, are self-centered. It's all about us. And that's why we have to be admonished to, as the Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. To do nothing from selfishness, right? But in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. There's a reason why that's in Scripture. Do you ever self, find yourself fighting with God? Of course you do. Our desires pull us one way. God's desires are, are pulling us other ways. Jonah found himself in that very position, but his own desire won over God's for a period of time. Or so he thought. And, and, and we often see in our own lives God accomplishing his purposes through uh, um, Jonah, so to speak, even though it meant God doling out a heavy dose of humility on a prideful and unwilling heart. That happens to us. This book is a mirror of you and me. Have you ever been so mad at God that you've sat outside and you're just ranting and ranting. When we read the story, Jonah acted like he thought he was in the right and God was wrong. And he's, and he's accusing God. He's not necessarily arguing, but he's accusing God and God doesn't argue back. But he just got ready to teach Jonah another lesson. 
Why? Because Jonah was constantly focusing on the wrong things, which leads me to an, an observation that when we're mad at God, it's a pretty good sign that we've lost our perspective and are focused on the wrong things. And those are harsh words, but this is a mirror that we're looking at. And if you think about it, while Jonah eventually went and he did prophesy to Nineveh, he wasn't happy about it. And here, herein lies another touchstone for our lives, that aligning our desires with God is always a process. And just because we go through the motion of following God's will doesn't mean our hearts are aligned with His. Think about that. God wanted Jonah's actions and his heart. He wants our actions and our heart as well. And yet when you think about it, we justify our own bitterness. You know, we have these conversations like Jonah is having with God in private. Maybe we don't do it in public, but in private we, we think like Jonah. In public we'll do the religious cliches, hence, you know, I'm just being tested. Right? But Jonah is upset about a stupid plant and not the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are spared. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Everything, every good thing we have comes from God. So remember that the next time you're having a bad hair day. You got hair. Right? Some of you, you're struggling. God provides things, and, and, and we get so attached with the blessings that God has gives us, and we're addicted to God's goodness to us, that we lose sight of the fact that there's a planet out there filled with people who don't know Him and have not experienced His grace or know anything of His goodness. We're into our hair, we're into our home improvement projects, we're into our weight our wardrobe, our golf game, right? Our fantasy hockey league, we're at other tons of stupid stuff. And God has given to us, you know, he's, he's re really given us to have a, a good time and really that's all we think about and care about. But when our car breaks down or our team loses or our, ho our hair looks terrible, we get mad and we lose focus on things that really don't matter. And the very thing we try to divide, derive our happiness from actually becomes our idol because we are attempting to find comfort and solace from it. We're actually worshiping it. We love those things more than God, and pretty soon we're worshiping it more than Him. And when those things get taken away from us to wake us up, and not to take him so seriously, we get angry, and some people go so far as to get angry at God. And so you have to ask, has God ever taught you a tough lesson? And I suspect I know the answer to that, because all of us at times needed to learn a particularly difficult lesson. And if we're willing to really listen, God helps us work through life's tough lessons as well. You know, we can learn some great lessons from others without having to personally go through every experience ourselves. You know, prejudice and hatred were rampant in Jonah's day. They were common. And when you think about it, they're also common today in our culture, are they not? And common or not, 
They should have no place in our lives as believers. But it doesn't mean that's not there. And Jonah's about to learn this big lesson, and it wasn't going to be easy for him to swallow, pardon the pun, but in fact, we're not even sure he got it at first. Because the book ends without telling us if he finally understood. The point of the book was to teach Jonah and those who would read the book later about God's love. And we are to love those God loves. And we are to share grace that we ourselves have experienced with those who haven't experienced it yet. So it's very easy to figure out what part of Jonah's problem was. And one of the reasons why he was tremendously unhappy is that he was simply selfish. And if we're honest, all of us are selfish too. To ignore what's going on in the larger world, to become obsessed with only what's happening in our own small corner of the world, demonstrates the fact that we are selfish. And if we're honest, all of us, uh, all of us understand what it is to lose our perspective and major on things that don't minor and minor on the things that do matter. And again, being selfish just comes naturally to all of us. And it's that part of selfishness that as believers we have to constantly fight. And what we look at as this book of Jonah just ends abruptly. We don't see a nice clean story. And the reality of life is that it's not always nice and clean. Charles Colton, he said this, he says, life isn't like a book. Life isn't logical or sensible or orderly. Life is a mess most of the time. And theology, which is really our understanding, uh, our study and our understanding of God, our theology must be lived out in the midst of that mess. I love that. Each year during the Day of Atonement, otherwise known as Yom Kippur, the Jews gather together. It's the holiest day. They gather together in the synagogue. And what did they do? What is their liturgy? Their liturgy is they read the book of Jonah. At the conclusion, the entire congregation will respond in unison. We are Jonah. See, it's easy for us to look at the story of Jonah and the whale or whatever, however you want to put it, and, and until we realize it, and we knock Jonah for what he does, and then we realize that we are Jonah. We are the hypocrites. I think the final question meant for us to answer when we read this is, do I see Jonah in myself? And as we read this book, it confronts all of us with God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will where God says go and Jonah says no, right? God reveals his will to Jonah and what does he do? He runs away from it. He doesn't run after it. While Jonah's message and mission is unique, the ebb and flow of his wrestlings with, with, with what's going on is actually clearly revealed. God's clearly revealed will, which is common to all of us. And I think one of the striking contrasts in this book is this dichotomy between how Jonah responds to God's word and the way the Ninevites, these pagans, respond. Jonah runs, Nineveh repents. And furthermore, as believers, many of us can relate to that feeling when God's word reverberates in our souls and begins to dislodge some sin. You're reading scripture, you're feeling convicted, right? You know, whether it's sin, it's a desire or a practice, something is being spoken. What do you do with that feeling? What do you do with that argument in your mind between you and God when you know, do you run? And if so, which way do you run? 
Or do you get right with God and, and straighten it out? And Jonah is also, his story is great because it shows us that there's no way to run from God. And as Jonah runs, God is there running alongside him. Without breaking a sweat, provides a boat for Jonah to escape, right? You know, here we have God who never sleeps, never slumbers. He's always looking out for you and I. It's just his character. He's always chasing us. He's always forever and never ending when you think about it relentlessly, ferociously, viciously, eternally chasing after us. Because even in our disobedience, this is the hard part. God is constantly faithful. And finally, in this book, what we see is that Jonah points to Jesus. And, and you, you can't miss the connections to Jesus. Mark chapter 4, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. It tells the story of Jesus and the disciples in a boat. And, and it uses the same language, almost identical to Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah are in a boat. Both boats are overtaken by a storm. Both Jesus and Jonah were what? Sleeping. Right? Both stories, the sailors woke up. The sleeper said, look it, we're going to die. In both cases, there was this miraculous divine intervention, and the sea is calmed. In both stories, the sailors become more terrified than they were before the storm was calm. And in the midst of the storm, Jonah says to the sailors, the, the only thing, the only one thing to do if I perish, you'll avoid judgment and, and survive. In other words, throw me over and you'll be okay. In the midst of our sin, Jesus says, I will die that you may live. But you won't just avoid judgment, you'll also receive eternal life because I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus declared of himself in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke chapter 11 that the one greater than Jonah is here. And so Jonah went from his post in Israel to Tarshish to flee away from the will of God. Jesus went from heaven to earth to accomplish the will of God. Jonah is thrown over and sacrificed to calm a raging storm. Jesus was thrown on a cross and sacrificed to cure our raging sin. And Jonah was called to preached to a people who hated him and whom he hated but would eventually repent. Jesus was called to people, to preach to a people whom he loved but who hated him and who would eventually put nails in his hands. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights because of his disobedience. Jesus was laid in the bell of the earth because of our disobedience. The fish spit Jonah out after three days to give him a second chance. And the grave spit the Son of God out to give you and me a second chance. Now, we won't board a boat to flee halfway across the world like Jonah did, although many of us think that sounds like a great vacation right about now. But you and I run from the call of God every day.
I think God speaks to us in very small little ways. Hence, hey, sir, can you spare a cup of coffee? And many times we don't even realize that we're running. We justify, right? But the good news of the gospel is that we can never outrun grace, that God's ability to forgive is infinitely greater than our ability to sin. And God doesn't come after you and me because he needs us, but because we need him. And the reason that God seeks sinners, saves sinners, and sends sinners like Jonah and like you and like me is that he loves sinners. And we see that in the scripture. In, in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for everybody who would call on his name. So, ladies and gentlemen, as you open the mirror to the book of Jonah, what do you see? Why don't you stand with me? Thank you that we belong to the living God. Jesus, thank you for coming to us as you pursue Jonah. You also pursue us. Some of us here, you have spoken too many times, and thank you that you're always speaking, even when we don't listen. And God, we confess that we are no better than Jonah. We are filled with self-righteousness and we may feel that we're better than anybody else, but because we are religious or spiritual or pious, we are not as bad as those people we gossip about. And yet, God, we confess we're probably worse because we know that the living God has spoken to us and we're ignoring him. God, I just thank you that you love us and you change us, and I thank you that you put new life into us and that you choose to use us. Not just so that the Great Commission would get done, but that, you, that we would be transformed in this process. So my prayer today is that you would give us a sense of urgency for ourselves, but also our city. And may an outbreak of goodness and grace explode in this city because of what you are doing in our lives. And so we come in humble repentance so that we can be transformed. So transform us is our request, God. Amen and amen. If you'd like prayer today or you want to talk to somebody further about faith or connect in some way online as a screen, 226-7254, call that number. There's always somebody on our team who's ready to reply, to meet, and to pray with you. And even if you're here today and you want to talk further, just contact us at the office. We will gladly book time to sit down and to talk. So in ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing, here it is. May you go forth from this place, so sanctuary, and be thankful for the life that sustains and renews you. And open to the grace that surrounds and surprises you. And may God be your haven and glory. May Christ Jesus give you courage for his mission. And may the Holy Spirit embrace your soul in his silence. Be blessed, and we'll see you next week. Amen and amen.